if if the doors opened in back and somebody came in late, there would be a lot of them just immediately, not out of curiosity and like around here, but um, immediately they'd turn around because they'd been so conditioned to having the KJB KGB um, break into their meetings and take people out and and harass them. And even though it had been a number of years since any of that had happened, that was still ingrained in them. And it, it really left an impression on my mind um, to what these believers had had endured for the purely for the love of Jesus Christ. And we could go and the majority of the world today population is in um, areas that Christianity is not friendly. Uh, they are not friendly toward Christianity and, um, and are bearing up under persecution. And a blessed thing in all of it is the more they strike at the cause of Christ, the more that it grows. And um, it has been that way throughout all of history. And Jesus knew that this whole aspect of persecution is something that, if we're a follower of Christ, we need to learn to deal with. And so, in this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, after he teaches these principles that we've been looking at, he wraps them up, so to speak, with verse 10, which we looked at this morning, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So this morning we looked at there needs to be two foundational things here that the persecution is due to righteousness, that we're doing what is right, and that we're living for his name's sake. Blessed are you um, which are persecuted and falsely accused for my name's sake, he said. So it means that we really can't rejoice in persecution or rejection if it comes from something other than that. And you might say, well, what else could it come from? Well, it might come from an improper attitude. As believers, we may say the right thing, but we may be coming at it from a wrong attitude. We might come with a condescending, arrogant spirit. And unbelievers, maybe even believers, might react to that by reacting to our pride and arrogance. And we could walk away, oh, they're persecuting me or whatever. And it may not be necessarily for his name's sake. It may not be for the cause of Christ. They, they are reacting to an arrogant spirit, a condescending 
um, sometimes we can get into a, an antagonistic, a quarrelsome spirit. We're debating, and um, let's just say maybe we're debating about the, the truth about creation versus evolution, and we know what we believe about creation, and, and the point, it turns into, I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong. And we lose sight of the fact that, wait a minute, it's not about proving who's right and wrong. It's about breaking down the barriers to bring them to Christ. And, and they may respond to that quarrelsome, antagonistic, you know, it's, it's turned into this one-on-one match and I'm going I'm not gonna let go of this until I, I show you that I am right. It may be an attitude of disrespect that how could any idiot believe that? You must, you know, you must have a perverted mind or something and, and no respect and failing to realize, but by the grace of God, that is us. And, and in understanding that, um, we must carefully guard our attitude. It's one thing to do what is right. It is important that we do what is right with the right spirit. It is one thing to take the right stand. It is another thing to take the right stand with the right spirit. And I fear that in Christianity at times we've taken the right stand with the wrong spirit. And it may not be the stand that drives people away and causes them to reject that it may be the spirit that we come across with. So it's not rejoicing just because you're getting opposition. Why is the opposition there? Is it because of an improper attitude? Is it because of selfish motives? Um, we, we kind of touched on this already, a desire to prove them wrong. Uh, a defensive attitude. Um, as Christians, oftentimes the world looks at believers as ignorant bumpkins that, you know, give no credence to science and, and all of these things. And sometimes we can come across with an attitude I am not an ignoramus, and there are a lot of really intelligent people that believe in Jesus Christ, and I'm going to, I'm going to prove to you that we're not just some bumpkins. Well, the fact of the matter is we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that he chose the simple and the foolish and the unlearned and the ignorant. So lest we get too high and haughty, and you can say, but I know some really smart people that it's true. But, you know, if we get into this proving them wrong and proving us right, we're missing the whole point about it. And in, and in understanding, um, selfish motives can come in here. Um, even a selfish motive, I am, I'm going to work here and represent truth so that people see me as something. Then we're doing it for our namesake, not for God's namesake. Um, don't rejoice if 
the persecution is the result of unwise words that are used. I, I look back in my life and there are times that stick in my mind of things that I've said that immediately set things on edge and, and created a bad spirit where there could not be a decent conversation about things because I, I said something that immediately hit their hot button and oftentimes we do that on purpose. And so they react and then it's easy to get a martyr's complex. Yeah, they're, they're persecuting me because I love Christ. No, it's, they're persecuting you and me because we're stupid. I mean, Jesus Christ was very, very careful in the use of his words, and he did use strong words at times. But you look at the people that he used the strong words to, nearly every time it was to the religious leaders. It was to the very pompous, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And, um, you know, throughout his, his life, very careful in the use of his words. We can, we can get caught up in saying things and doing things that immediately create, or I should say, cut off any hearing of truth. And we may walk away thinking, ah, they just don't want to hear it. Well, again, it's speaking the truth in love. In other words, how would I, if I was in that situation, how would I want someone to bring me this truth? How would I want to be approached in this? Is it that I really care for their souls, the speaking the truth in love? And we looked at this morning in First Peter chapter 4. Make sure you do not suffer as an evildoer. Make sure you're not suffering because of something ignorant that we did. Or as an evildoer, you did wrong and, um, and they're persecuting. Um, you know, I've, I've known people that didn't do a good job in their work and received repercussions for it, but they walked away saying they're doing this because, um, I'm a Christian. And come to find out, it really wasn't about them being a Christian or not. It was about they were suffering as an evildoer. They weren't doing a good job. So he says, um, don't suffer as an evildoer. So that's just kind of some backdrop. It's not just wherever you're, you receive opposition, say, oh, good, rejoice. No, examine, okay, why am I getting this opposition? Is because I've had an arrogant spirit and attitude? Is it because I'm coming into this defensive? Is it because I've already lobbed the bomb in there to, to begin with and blowing things up and then wonder why it... So we need to examine that. But when there is genuine opposition, he tells us that we are to rejoice, that we are to um, to have a deep, overflowing joy in the midst of it. And we say, 
wait a minute. You know, we pray for days to go well. Um, I don't think any of you have prayed this last week. Lord, please bring persecution into my life. Uh, We don't pray that. I mean, so it's not like, yes, God answered my prayer and he's bringing persecution into my life. So if persecution comes into our life, how can we rejoice in it? What can we see in it? How does God see it? And I want to mention several things tonight that we can rejoice because persecution brings a deeper understanding of the word of God. Look at Psalm 119 and verse 71. Psalm 119 and verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I might learn thy statutes. Some of the times that the Word of God shines the brightest in our lives is in those darkest days. And the affliction may be persecution, and it may be when everyone is coming against you, and and it may be in the midst of that that then you go to the Word as your only comfort, and you find there an deeper understanding of who God is, a deeper understanding of the ways of God. Job is a supreme example of that. By the time Job was through everything, he knew God much more than he did when he went into it. Now, in order for us to have a deeper understanding of the Word of God through persecution, there must initially be a hunger and thirst for the Word of God. If I don't hunger for the Word of God... I'm not going to, I'm not going to get a renewed, deeper understanding of the Word of God. That's why right now is preparation time. I, my, if I have my desire, my desire would be to, um, have the Lord come before we suffer severe persecution. But, that may or may not happen. And we ought to be preparing. What's the greatest thing you can do to prepare? Have a hunger and thirst for God and His Word. To know God. And then, if that comes into our life, we will, we will, because we've been feeding on the Word of God, we'll have a deeper understanding of the Word of God. Secondly, we can rejoice because persecution elevates our dependence upon God. A sign was put up in a textile mill. It said, when your thread becomes tangled, call the foreman. A young lady was new on the job and her thread became tangled and she thought, oh, I can just straighten this out myself. And she tried, but the situation only worsened. And finally, she called the foreman and she said, I did the best I could. And the foreman said, no, you didn't. To do the best, you should have called me first. And many times we have the tangled mess of our life and we think, I'll try to untangle this. And we think we're doing our best and we come to God and say, I did my best. And God says, no, you didn't. If you did your best, you would have called me first. 
And in the midst of persecution, when our efforts are cut off, and oftentimes we have no place else to look but God, it increases our dependence upon God. That takes for granted that we started with the dependence upon God. But we are so prone to depend on our own efforts, so prone. God gives us strength and wisdom and we're able to do this, and then we just go on. One of the greatest dangers in the Christian's life is success. Because, hey, we had success here. It was God giving us success, God helping us. I can handle this now. And we go on without God, and we lose that dependence upon God. Persecution gives us an opportunity to elevate our dependence upon God. God often brings us to an end of ourselves to show us himself. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We find another reason we can rejoice in persecution. Romans 5, we're familiar, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also, by Jesus Christ, we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience brings experience. And experience hope. And hope does not make a shame because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Notice this. Paul, who had his fair share of tribulation and persecution, said, We glory in tribulation. We, we, we rejoice in this. Why? Bottom line, it develops character. He said... Tribulation teaches patience. And patience brings experience, and experience hope, and hope makes not a shame. It develops the real us. John Wooden, the famous um, Hall of Fame coach, basketball coach, said, Be more concerned with your character than with your reputation. Your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. We ask, why does, why does persecution often result in revival? Because it deals with developing the character of who we really are. It, it cuts away the facade. It cuts away the concern of all this, and it's like... God, it is only you and me, and, and I am totally dependent upon you, and I want you to shape in me whatever you desire to shape. We can rejoice in persecution because 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it gives us a clear perspective on life and eternity. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Notice in verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side. 
yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Notice verse 14. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise us up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not. Verse 16 is referring back to verse 14. Knowing that the Spirit of God that raised up Jesus will also raise us up, Because we know that, for that cause we faint not. But though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul was saying, this is what's happening in us physically but we're not giving in. We're not giving up. We have, we see the big picture. We know that the same power that raised up Christ from the dead, if they kill this body, is going to raise us up. And though the outward man, the physical body, perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. He's strengthened day by day. And for that reason, we don't faint. What's Paul seen? He's seen A clear perspective on life. You know, what's going to happen to our body? Every one of us, our bodies are eventually going to return to the dust. And and that is where we will be. But the real us, although our body diminishes... The real us can be strengthened day by day. And in this same passage, Paul said, The abundant grace is working through you to abound to others to the glory of God. It not only gives us a clear perspective, it broadens our usefulness. The same comfort, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the same way we have been comforted to comfort others also. Paul's concern was not what would happen to him. His concern was what his testimony would be that he would leave for the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, he said, God, my desire is that you would be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. The bottom line is I want you to be magnified because you are all that matters. And Paul's attitude was, if, if peace and prosperity, I want to honor. I've learned to be content when I have much or when I have little. When things are going well or when there's persecution. And he said, God allows me to experience these things so that I can be useful in the lives of others. 
he's writing in Philippians. He said, you're praying for me, and I appreciate your prayers for me, but your concern for me that I'm in prison. He says, hey, this is open to whole new ministry. I am able, I've been able to present the gospel to the kings and the leaders. The gospel is going forward. Paul's whole mentality was not, get me out of here, get me out of here. His whole mentality, even in the midst of persecution, how can I glorify God in this? It broadens our usefulness, and it then gives us an opportunity to show our love for the Lord. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and an early church leader whose life ended when he refused to betray the Lord. He was asked one last time to disavow Christ, and the old man replied, Eighty and six years have I served him. That doesn't mean he was 86 years old. That means 86 years he knew Christ. So hard telling how old he was. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I speak evil of my king who saved me? What a testimony. What a way to show his love for the Lord. Eusebius, a a historian, recorded Polycarp's prayer. This is what he recorded. Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, I bless you. This is his, his last prayer. I bless you that you have counted me worthy of this day and hour that I might be in the number of the martyrs. Among these, may I be received before you today in a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you have beforehand prepared and revealed. Wherefore also, I praise you also for everything. I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal high priest Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom... With him, in the Holy Spirit, be glory unto you, both now and for the ages to come. Amen. Eusebius added this. When he had offered up his amen and had finished his prayer, the fireman lit the fire and he was burned at the stake. What? A picture of love to God. See, it's one thing to say, I love you, Lord. It's another thing to say, I am with you, Lord, even when everyone else is against you. And it's another thing to say, I love you, Lord, when we know it will cost our lives. Do you understand, we sit here tonight on the shoulders of hundreds and thousands of people 
that the trail of their blood has brought us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they love not their lives more than their Savior, and they were willing to go. I, I still vividly remember when, uh, after my senior year in college, worked with a missionary in Austria, and they, they took us to a castle that Balthazar Hubmeyer, who is a, a man of faith, a, a, a man of like faith and practice as we are, because of his faith and commitment to the word, he was kept in prison in this, and they actually showed the rack. They would, they would lay these individuals on, on this instrument. They would tie cords around their wrists and their feet, and they would start just stretching them out. And they'd, they'd wheel these on one end and on the other, and they'd leave them there stretched out. And then they'd come back later and turn it tighter and tighter. And are you willing to dis, disavow Jesus Christ? And the persecution that they went in, and because he believed in, he didn't believe in infant baptism, he believed in baptism of believers, they said, because you love water so much, they drowned him in the river. I mean, this is the character of, of what has brought the gospel here. We think of those that, that came to America. They left Holland to come to America because of the persecution, because of their desire to remain true to the Lord. They bore persecution even in our own land. And there were individuals that, that stood against everyone else and said, no, we need freedom of religion in this land. Our forefathers when most of them wanted state churches as they had known over there. And some of them lost everything they had for the sake of standing for liberty. The fact of the matter is, we may not be experiencing it tonight. But we need to build our love for the Lord and our love for His Word that If that happens, we are not scrambling, trying to get spiritually strong enough that we can be faithful to God. It's not enough to just say, oh, I hope I'm faithful to God. It's not enough, Lord, help me not to endure persecution. That's not it. God's plan may be persecution. It is for the vast majority of followers of him. And what Jesus is saying, he's putting out here, he's saying, this is a reality. Charles Swindoll wrote these words, The world needs men who cannot be bought, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and a will, who are larger than their vocation, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be as honest in small things as in great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, 
whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not say they do it because everybody else does, who are true to their friends through good report and evil report in adversity as well as in prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, and hard-heartedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it is unpopular, who can say no with emphasis, although all the rest of the world says yes. I really believe that the days are coming in our nation that to say no with emphasis and stand upon it is going to be greeted by the rest of the world and much of Christianity that will be saying yes. And that is then where the test comes. Do I love God more than I love ease, more than I love acceptance, more than I love anything else? More love to thee, O God, more love to thee. This be my earnest cry, more love to thee. Tonight, as we close in prayer, um, we'll be praying for our nation. And um, we'll ask those to get the microphones if you would be willing to pray Um, I'll start out, and then you just raise your hand and get a microphone. But I believe it'd be very, very fitting for us tonight to also to remember those in prayer um, that maybe you are aware of, or generally that are we know under persecution. 